Coaching in K-12 education has traditionally been limited to the sports field, not the classroom, and directed towards students, not their teachers. But that may be changing as a growing number of schools embrace coaching as a strategy to improve teacher performance. As of 2016, 20% of public schools reported having a reading coach on staff, and 18% had a math coach. What's driving these investments? And is there any reason to think that they can improve teacher practice and ultimately student outcomes? I'm Marty West, editor of Education Next, and I'm joined today by Matthew Kraft, associate professor of education and economics at Brown University. Along with David Blazer, Matt is the author of the new article, Taking Teacher Coaching to Scale, that will appear in the fall 2018 issue of the journal and is available now at educationnext.org. Matt, welcome to the Ednex podcast. Thanks, Marty. It's a pleasure to be here. So your article presents teacher coaching as a new form of professional development for teachers, but you note that it contrasts sharply with the traditional model of PD. So how do you define teacher coaching and what makes it distinct? So teacher coaching is broadly characterized by, I would argue, five general tenets. It's individualized focused around one-on-one interactions between coaches and teachers. It's intensive. Uh, Coach and teacher pairs work over uh, a long period of time to really focus on instructional improvement. And it's sustained. It's particularly that over a semester or a full year that the coaching cycles continue so that teachers and coaches have the opportunity to practice multiple rounds of different pedagogical practices and refine them. It's context-specific, and this is, I think, one of the most uh, distinct elements of coaching relative to traditional PD, in that it is situated in each individual teacher's own classroom context and the challenges and opportunities that that context presents. And finally, it's focused. Although I would argue every teacher has a range of skills on which they could uh, improve their practice and develop on their current strengths. Coaching often tends to uh, narrow down and focus on a core set of skills rather than being uh, a mile wide and an inch deep. And I I suppose in all five of those ways, the contrast with traditional PD is quite strong. I think we often think of traditional PD as being the sit and get where some expert helicopters into a setting, gives their standard presentation to a bunch of teachers who may or may not be paying attention, and then they go back to their business. Is that a, a fair characterization? It certainly rings true with some of the PD that I experienced as a classroom teacher in public schools. And it would be unfair to say that that's the only type of PD that's out there. Obviously, we're studying coaching because it has grown as a phenomenon, and and there's a fluid continuum. But uh, strikingly, despite what is now decades worth of uh, evidence suggesting that these traditional uh, one-off PD modules and workshops don't really have much evidence of impacting student outcomes, uh, that style of PD has been remarkably hard to change in classrooms and schools. And I suppose one implication of the definition of coaching that you offered is that not all of the staff with the title of instructional coach are actually coaching, as you would define it, depending on how they're carrying out their responsibilities. But the number of people with that title has certainly increased. What do you think's 
behind this trend? You just said traditional model of PD has been very resistant to innovation. So why are we seeing signs of innovation now? That's a good question and admittedly not one that I think we have uh, a conclusive answer to. My read of the evidence and my sense in talking to practitioners is that uh, the movement towards uh, observation and feedback has been one that has existed for a while, whether that was situated in uh, evaluation or in professional development, but that coaching has really helped to harness and formalize that in a way. So it's built on something that has been uh, somewhat at the core of, of classroom uh, practice in schools and something that teachers are quite familiar with to provide a structure, often uh, a rubric, to focus those uh, conversations and reflections on teacher instructional practice. And I think it also is just inherent in teachers' experiences about the value of coaching. Yeah, that's interesting. I think both of the developments you mentioned, the uh, spread of more rigorous and structured observations of classroom practice and the advent of coaching, both of those seem to violate or at least challenge this longstanding norm in K-12 education in which teachers have very little interference or supervision when the classroom door closes. And to the extent that new evaluation systems have started to change that, maybe coaching is the natural next step. We're doing this already. How can we make sure that we're uh, actually changing teacher practice as a result? Dan Lordy famously characterized public schools as these egg crate structures in which teachers enter their classroom and close the door and largely operate as independent actors. And I would argue that today that norm is changing, although it's still the pervasive norm. And, and one of the things that comes out of our study is that conditions that help make coaching more successful are schools where the culture allows for and promotes those types of open door policies and cultures where teachers are comfortable with outsiders, including their own peers, observing them, uh, providing feedback, and um, having a school-wide norm around continuous improvement. So let's turn to this study. Uh, you and David Blazer, who I'm proud to claim quickly as a formal doctoral advisee, set out to determine whether coaching works, whether this new development is a good thing. And so to do that, you pulled together all the research you could find addressing that question. At the end of the day, you identified, I think, 60 studies of teacher coaching that, in your judgment, provided causal evidence on its effectiveness. And I want to stop there for a second because you note in the article that this number, 60 studies, is somewhat remarkable given that in 2007, there was a review of all research on teacher professional development that found just nine studies that were able to support causal inferences. So how is it possible that we got to 60 in a matter of a decade? Is there something unique about teacher coaching that lends itself to experimental evaluation? Or are we really just seeing the consequences of the broader change in how we do education research? I think encouragingly, this is really uh, a product of a, a larger sea change in the methodological approaches scholars are taking to understanding the effects of different education policies and practices. And it is really, for me, quite shocking to have seen the large growth in the use of randomized field trials to evaluate uh, 
in particular teacher professional development, I think this is a product of both kind of a, uh, a rising uh, recognition in, across the social sciences of the, the importance and value of causal inference and um, investments from the federal government and other philanthropic organizations in uh, raising the quality and rigor of evidence uh, behind different education policies and practices. And I think a lot of that has been focused on trying to make sure that novel ideas are subjected to evaluation. And so maybe the sort of novelty of teacher coaching is what has caused it to be the subject of this type of research as well. So when you and David looked across this entire body of 60 studies, what do you find? Does teacher coaching work? So the short answer is yes. We think that across the body of evidence that we reviewed, there's compelling evidence that on average, teacher coaching both strengthens the quality of teachers' instruction and raises performance on standardized tests of the students for whom their teachers received coaching. And to put that in context, we find uh, effect sizes of about uh, a half of a standard deviation on instruction, which is larger than the gains that teachers make on average as they gain experience in the classroom, starting off as a novice and entering into their mid-career up to about 10 years of experience. And that same finding holds true for effects on achievement, where we find average effects of around um, uh, a fifth of a standard deviation, which again translates to approximately uh, equal to or slightly more than the improvement that you observe uh, teachers experiencing on average as they gain just general experience in the classroom over the first 10 years. So one way to think about the findings is that it seems as if a coaching program is helping students to advance along the experience curve much more rapidly than they otherwise would. I think that's right. I think just general classroom experience provides the opportunity to through trial and error, try different things. Some work, some don't, and you get feedback along the way, whether it's helpful or, or just oppositional feedback from students. And teachers improve through that process, but coaching, given its intensity and its focus, really helps to harness that improvement process and I think uh, both amplify it and um, accelerate it. So one of the things that you just mentioned in summarizing the results is that you see relatively larger effects on measures of teacher practice based on classroom observations, about a half of a standard deviation, than you do effects on student achievement as measured by test scores there, about a fifth of a standard deviation. What do you make of that difference, the larger effects on teacher practice than on student achievement? So it's certainly fair to say that a half a standard deviation effect is larger than a fifth of a standard deviation effect. But, but I would contextualize those estimates um, relative to the other evidence we have on how hard or easy it is to move instructional practices versus student achievement. And think about it in the framework of kind of a causal chain. And the first thing we argue needs to happen for coaching to work is we're building teachers' knowledge and their instructional skills, and then that translates into practice in the classroom, and then even farther down the chain, that impacts students' own understanding and knowledge, which we hope is captured and reflected on their performance on state standardized tests. So it's not surprising that student achievement, we find, um, 
what you might characterize as smaller effects because those are more distal outcomes, harder to connect to. But that being said, relative to the other literature on professional development and even the broader literature on kind of teacher-level interventions or school-wide interventions to raise student achievement, we would characterize the effects on achievement as quite encouraging and relatively large. Yeah, I agree with that characterization. And I was also struck by the fact that the coaching programs that seem to have the largest effects on teacher practice were the ones that, on average, tended to have a larger effect on student achievement, which to some degree speaks to the validity of that causal logic that you just laid out. That's right. And I think it also just speaks to the, the reality that it takes substantial improvements in practice to really change students' own uh, academic understanding and achievement. It, we, tinkering on the margins, I don't think, is going to really move the needle for students in the way that we need to. And I think coaching, uh, while it's focused, uh, helps to impact teachers' instruction in a way that um, is consistent throughout every instructional day. And that kind of over time amplifies its own impact. Now, one nice thing about a meta-analysis like you and David are doing here is that it doesn't just let you study the average effect of coaching programs like we've been talking about so far, but also lets you analyze what makes some programs more effective than others. So as you ask that second question, why do some coaching programs seem to have a larger effect? What are the main takeaways there? So one of the primary questions that the prior literature and I think practitioners have really been interested in is whether or not more coaching equals more effective coaching. Uh, if we have teachers and coaches meet for 10 times rather than five, is that twice as effective? And to ideally answer that, we would want to randomize teachers to programs where they had either five or 10 coaching sessions. And I'm really not aware of any study that's done that. Especially because everything else would have to stay the same about the, the program. That's right. And so instead, what we have is this comparison of programs that differed on a lot of dimensions, including the frequency with which uh, coaches met with teachers. When we look across that dimension, we don't see compelling evidence that simply those programs with more frequent uh, meetings or just longer total hours in contact with teachers uh, have systematically higher effects on their instruction and student achievement. Our interpretation of that is that the quality of the coaching is paramount and that more of a mediocre thing isn't necessarily better. Uh, I don't have evidence to support it definitively, but my read of having worked with specific programs to evaluate their uh, effects and, and having heard feedback from teachers is that certainly the opportunity to engage in a sustained and multiple round of observation and feedback cycle process has benefited teachers. Um, but it's, I think, first important to focus on ensuring the quality of a program before uh, making sure that it is uh, a high dosage program. And then what about scale? This is one of the other aspects of programs that you look at uh, and find some intriguing and potentially quite important uh, uh, findings. So tell us about how the effects of coaching programs 
vary as the number of coaches who are participating changes. So we find descriptively that larger coaching programs, we characterized as those that uh, engaged uh, with over 100 teachers. And so half of those teachers are in the control group typically. So we're talking really just 50 teachers typically or more um, had systematically smaller effects on instruction and achievement. We're talking about a half to a third of the magnitude. Uh, and then that relationship looks actually um, approximately uh, linear uh, in, in its kind of diminishing returns to scale. And there could be a number of reasons for this. One is simply something like publication bias. These uh, studies that were small only were published if they were uh, finding quite large effects. Otherwise, there were null effects and they might be less likely to publish. We, we tested the sensitivity of our results to that uh, specifically and didn't find that this result was driven by that. And so we do think that this is a general relationship. Um, although it's one that you actually find quite consistently in the meta-analysis literature more generally. And I think that's not surprising because there's a large and robust uh, both kind of ethnographic and qualitative literature and empirical literature that uh, taking programs to scale in the education context, which really um, requires implementation on the ground level, um, is hard to do when... Uh, the actors, teachers, and coaches implement practices as are prescribed in quite different ways. And so what advice would you have for a school district or charter management organization that wants to implement a coaching program at scale? So we can tell them it's hard, but is there anything we can do in terms of practical advice as to how to avoid that diminishing return to what seems to be a quite promising strategy? To be clear, our findings don't suggest that coaching can't be effective at scale. It just suggests that, on average, it's been harder to achieve the same level of effectiveness when coaching programs are larger. And we sense that there's, based on our reading of the 60 studies, a number of reasons for which this is true. The first is that, at its core, coaching really relies on the quality of the coaches. And many of these smaller studies were uh, conducted using a very small set of motivated uh, kind of pioneering coaches that developed the program that they were implementing. And taking something to scale means building systems to recruit and train and support uh, a larger set of, of coaches that may simply not have the same level of experience or expertise. And so scaling up really requires developing a robust system of uh, of building this coaching corps. Um, secondly, just the dollars and cents of coaching uh, can be hard to add up at scale for districts that are, face non-trivial budget constraints. At the end of the day, this is really an investment in um, personnel expenditures. You need to pay for the time of coaches to work intensively with a handful of teachers. And so it's hard to cut costs without substantially changing the nature of, of coaching. And what we found is that in many of these coaching programs that were taken to scale, coaches met relatively infrequently with teachers. They worked with a wide range of teachers. 
And in some cases, they worked in small groups rather than working individually. And I think not surprisingly, that diluted the effectiveness of those programs. I also think that a tendency in education is to, when taking things to scale, kind of standardize the framework that a, a program uses. And in a sense, that's uh, antithetical to the spirit of coaching because spo- coaching is supposed to be individualized. And so the, the degree to which coaching programs taken to scale uh, are having to follow a more prescribed set of, you know, first you always start with this skill and the next skill and not allowing for that individualization I think uh, constrains some of the power of coaching. And and lastly, something that we touched upon earlier is the importance of the context and climate in which coaching takes place. uh, You hear from teachers that they struggled to implement the tools and practices they learned because the school's curriculum uh, didn't support that type of deeper inquiry or um, the types of... uh, relationships they had with their peers or their uh, administrators weren't such that they felt uh, comfortable taking the risk of trying a new practice that they learn in the coaching process. So I think to summarize, building supportive environments where teachers feel that they can take risks and try new things, that allowing coaching to be flexible and dynamic at scale, uh, being creative about uh, taking costs Um, of traditional PD and repackaging them, taking a hard look at current expenditures and and allocating them to coaching in a way that may not be for every teacher, but a core set, and focusing on coaching quality. So teacher coaching was almost unheard of a decade ago. Uh, It's not yet the norm, but it's also no longer fully exceptional. Where do you think teacher coaching is headed next? And in particular, what role, if any, will technology play as the model evolves? So at its core, I think coaching will always revolve around the interpersonal interactions between a coach and the definition of who's a coach, I think, will evolve. And that's great because we need to experiment. Is that your next door neighbor teacher? Is that the principal? Is that an independent outside district curriculum or content expert? Is that a uh, a coach who works in a remote location that kind of uses a web-based portal to uh, talk with you about a, a digitally recorded lesson that you submitted. All of those, I think, are open questions, but I think both in terms of challenges around costs and around um, feeling comfortable taking risks around reflecting on strengths and weaknesses and trying new things, that uh, this web-based coaching approach Um, that provides the opportunity for teachers to interact with uh, experts that may have specific experience in their grade level and subject area because that expert doesn't have to be in their school or even in their district, which is quite hard to necessarily have, particularly in smaller districts or more rural contexts. And to share those videos and receive feedback. um, And so we've got technology playing an important role in providing the platform for this distance-based interaction and uh, these uh, very impressive 360-degree video capture cameras and and audio uh, that are being used in schools. Uh, I also think that there's potential for really harnessing the 
the knowledge that exists in each school across teachers and the specific skills and strengths that colleagues have. That a coach doesn't need to be an expert on everything. You might decide to focus on one particular skill like uh, asking open-ended questions and, and work with the teacher in your building who is particularly experienced and successful at that. And then vice versa, you might be an expert in uh, using multiple representations to teach different mathematical concepts. And that's what you focus on. And I think that uh, has an opportunity to really take this to scale and do so in a way that isn't constrained by necessarily having to uh, pay for an entire new uh, staff to implement the coaching. My guest today has been Matt Kraft, associate professor at Brown University and co-author of Taking Teacher Coaching to Scale, available now at educationnext.org. Matt, thanks for being part of the podcast. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to the EdNext podcast. If you like what you've heard, be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or another platform so that you don't miss an episode. And while you're at it, be sure to check out our archives, where you can find each of the more than 100 episodes we've recorded since 2015. Talk to you next week.